you know by now that the dogs in my house wear Paco collars, and the newest addition is Stig's tan leather collar with brass fittings and turquoise stones. It seriously looks like the bay we bought our house on, and his smooth coat and long neck show it off perfectly. We picked it out in person at Paco's booth, and the staff helped us to be sure we got the exact fit and style that was right for him. I catch myself mesmerized by this collar when I walk him. How crazy is that? So get over to PacoCollars.com and grab a collar you'll be obsessed with, and don't forget to use the promo code COGDOG for free shipping. We've got a puppy. Puppy Elementary is my puppy training subscription service, and it's all about our new puppy, Watson. It's just $45 for six months of Watson's development and education, and you'll have indefinite access to the materials, so sign up anytime. Just go to www.thecognitivecanine.com and click the Puppy Elementary tab at the top of the page to register. Each week, you'll have access to multiple training videos and blogs, as well as constant access to the Puppy Elementary Facebook group, where you can talk about your progress with other students. Watson won't stay little for long, so join now. You all know how excited I am about Worked Up Camp, and I hope you're excited too. Working spots are full, but... We've still got plenty of room for auditors. The camp is in Port Orchard, Washington, and it is September 28th through September 30th. It's going to be a ton of fun, lots of learning, really great community, and I can't wait. So hop over on the both the CogDog Radio and the Cognitive Canine Facebook pages have information on camp, and you can always join the camp event page. Just search for Worked Up Camp, and you'll find it, and you can get all the details there as well. So I hope to see you at camp. So no one's surprised, but we've got to talk some more about dog-directed reactivity. Last time, I talked about this super common behavior problem, which is dogs basically barking and lunging um, at other dogs, usually on leash. Um, And I talked about it in a way that felt kind of contradictory, maybe controversial to some of you guys. And I'm going to answer some of the questions that came up on the CogDog Radio Facebook page. So One of the major things that needs to be addressed um, is this contradiction between the idea of keeping our dogs under threshold all the time, and I'm going to kind of talk about that in a second, and also getting out into the world with our dogs. So I'm saying, get out there, unclip that leash, go on a hike, let your dog experience the world, and then most of the trainers in my field are saying work hard to keep your reactive dogs under threshold. And what they mean by that is keep your reactive dogs from reacting. Um, I think it's really important for us to define what we're talking about. And my colleague Amy Cook did a really great webinar for Fancy Dog Sports Academy on thresholds. Um, basically talked about the fact that everything's got a functional threshold. The functional threshold can change um, from, you know, here to there. And it's not a super helpful thing always to talk about. So this idea of keeping them under threshold, I'm going to say that that's keeping them doing certain behaviors, eating, responding to cues, and keeping them from doing other behaviors like barking and lunging. And, you know, that's kind of put out in, especially in the positive dog training, positive reinforcement-based dog training world as the best way to be, the best thing to do. And then I'm saying, 
let them get out there and experience some other dogs. And yes, there's going to be some snarkiness because that's normal dog behavior. And I don't want you to worry about it that much. And this just feels very contradictory. And it feels like I, we don't know what to do. And so let's first get back to that idea of what it means to keep the dog under threshold. The best analogy I, um, I've heard about this particular threshold idea uh, was from Grisha Stewart. And it's basically that the dog is standing on the beach near the water, all four feet on the dry sand. We're going to call that under threshold. And if the dog is in the water, underwater, drowning, that's the dog fully over threshold. So that's the dog um, that is barking, lunging, snarling, snapping, and cannot respond to cues, cannot eat. And here's the tough thing about any behavior problem we're trying to solve. If we always keep our feet firmly in the sand... We never dip our toes in the water. We never actually get to a point where we can swim. So if I'm losing you on this analogy a little bit, I my end goal for dog-directed reactivity is for my dog to be able to be out in the world and in nature and also to attend dog sports, um, dog sport events, and not cause a problem with other dogs. So... That's, for me, that's the dog swimming. The dog is in the water, head above water, breathing, swimming. Versus a dog that is underwater drowning is never what I want to be seeing. But in order to teach my dog to swim, we do have to go in the water. So what I'm saying is that if you don't consistently bump the threshold, so consistently go into the water and go a little deeper, little deeper, little deeper, you will never actually get the dog functional. And so if we just work really, really hard to orchestrate our dog's lives so that nothing that causes a reaction ever happens, we aren't actually helping them get better. Now, does that mean that sometimes your dog is going to experience something that they can't handle. Yeah, it, that is what that means. And it shouldn't be happening repeatedly. They shouldn't be bombarded with things they can't handle, but it is going to happen sometimes. And I talked about in the last episode that I think there's two routes for dealing with reactive behavior. Um, one is training the dog to do something else instead and that works best for situations where everybody's on leash, there's probably food involved, um, and the human has, you know, a lot of involvement with the dog, like at a dog show. Okay, so I do teach my dogs to look at me instead of interact with other dogs in the dog show context. And now I'm teaching, now I'm teaching them behaviors that are incompatible with um, barking and lunging, but also incompatible with just inappropriate social greetings. I don't want them paying attention to other dogs in those contexts. But then there's also, there's got, there has to be another route for getting them comfortable with other dogs in the real world. And where people freak out is that my route for that 
is take safety precautions that you need to take, like using muzzles or long lines, but get that short leash off and get the food out of the picture and let the dog talk to other dogs. Um, that's what I call healing by doing. And more on that later, because I am going to have um, my friend and colleague come on today and talk about reactivity. And then another question that came up in the Cog Dog Radio Facebook page was, you know, how should we react if our dogs are reacting? Like maybe I've got my dog next to me and he's growling. Um, I'm going to say you should do nothing. Or you should remove the, the dog from the situation if you feel the dog is going to escalate. If we constantly put food in the dog's face and distract them away from whatever it is, anytime they growl, we're doing a couple of things wrong there. We are, first of all, not respecting what the growl means. But second of all, teaching them that those behaviors will produce food for you. I mean, that is something that can happen. So let's say I'm standing you know, in line to go into an agility run and person behind me's dog has invaded my dog's space and my dog is snarling at the other dog. I'm actually going to do nothing with my dog. I'm going to say to the handler, can you move your dog away from mine, please? Um, and I'm going to do that in a firm, loud way so that they actually do. So they actually listen. I always try to manipulate the environment instead of the dog whenever possible. So if I can just remove the thing that's making my dog growl, then I will. And also it's so important, you guys, for us to remember that growling is a good thing because growling is not biting. So anytime my dog is growling, I actually like to give them what they're asking for, which is typically space from whatever the trigger is. Um, but I like to do that not by talking to them, but by talking to whatever it is that's invading their space. Um... And then another question was about flooding and, you know, what is flooding? And flooding is just something that we can do. It's actually a procedure um, in psychology where we are flooded, literally, with whatever it is that's causing us uncomfortable feelings. Um, and we're basically forced to be in the presence of the thing until we start to calm down about the thing. So if you locked me in a closet full of spiders, that would be flooding. I would panic, but at some point panic can't last. It can't go on forever. Um, and even though panic feels like it's going to kill you, it doesn't. And so at some point the panic breaks um, and I stop panicking about the spiders and then you let me out. And then you do it again and you do it again and you do it again until I no longer panic around spiders. This is, as just as it sounds, not a nice thing. <laughs> it's not a nice thing to do. And people do it all the time to dogs. They especially do it to puppies. I think the majority of what we're calling quote unquote socialization is just flooding. Um, and it's really unfortunate. And so no, I don't actually recommend flooding in the terms of dog reactivity. I would never shove a dog that is afraid of other dogs in a dog daycare or a dog park. Um, that's not what I'm saying to do. Also, um, flooding does not happen by accident. You've got to really control um, a lot of the circumstances in order for it to happen because flooding will only happen if the learner is unable to escape 
the trigger for an extended period of time um, until they calm down, essentially. And it's an ugly thing. It's not something that I recommend. It's got a lot of potential fallout, and um, it's not what I'm talking about here. And just a shout out to Tina Davies, who is in Wales. She came to a seminar I did in Wales uh, earlier this year, and she had a lot of really good questions because she has a little spitz dog with big, big feelings, and she works really hard to keep him safe in the world. And she listened to my podcast and it felt contradictory to what she'd been trying to do for so long. And so she just wanted to understand more. And I really appreciate all of her questions. And then just one other thing that I want to mention about the podcast last week, which is that I said I don't like dog daycares. And the fact of the matter is I don't. And you're not going to change my mind about that. But I do need to say that I know that they're not all created equal. I actually worked in a really, really terrible dog daycare. And I also worked in a really, really excellent one. And I also worked at another one that was kind of in between. And the really excellent one did serve a lot of dogs and their families. It certainly did. I still don't think it's the best thing, but I'm not going to say it's a bad thing if the daycare is run really, really well. Still not my choice, but certainly can be a good choice um, for some people, for some families and their dogs, if the daycare is run well. So I just wanted to apologize to my colleagues who um, may have felt kind of personally attacked about that when I said I don't like daycares, because a lot of my colleagues run daycares. Um, I'm sure you guys are doing excellent jobs, and I'm sure you're serving your clientele in a really helpful way. I think that the, the who dog daycare helps the most is people, the owners of the dogs, um, not as much the dogs themselves. But it is important that we consider the people. It is important that we consider that half of um, our clientele. And so if you're running a really excellent dog daycare, I take my hat off to you and I apologize for that statement and keep doing it. Keep it up. Keep providing a great space for dogs and people um, to kind of have that outlet. So now we're going to get to my call. I am talking today with Casey Coughlin, who owns and operates Inspiration Canine out of Windsor, Connecticut. Casey also works for me um, doing assistant work and assistant coaching work. She is also responsible for getting this podcast to you guys every week, and I really appreciate her. She's a great trainer, and she works largely in reactivity. That's what she does all week long. And so I wanted to get her on here and just get her current thoughts on what she's doing in reactivity and how maybe that stuff has changed for her as a trainer over time. Um, and I've got some other questions for her. So without delay, here we are. Hi, Casey Coughlin. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> So, you work with a ton of reactive dogs. How many are you working with in a week right now? I'm working with approximately, I would say, between 25 and 30 reactive dogs a week. That's insane. Um, how are you seeing that many dogs in a week? Um, it's counting 
all different avenues. So I see, I teach three reactive dog classes a week. Um, and then I have private clients and then I have online clients. So between all of those is, it's quite okay. a few. So through those three different avenues, you're seeing 25-ish. Yes. Um, when do you consider a case resolved? Kind of how long... How long do you generally work with maybe, let's say, a private in-person client to get them to their goals? I guess that's defined more by what the goals are and how bad the behaviors or how strong the behaviors are before I get involved. Um, I would say a minimum of three to six months. Okay. And I have some clients that I will probably see regularly for mm. like indef- indefinitely <laughs> years. <laughs> yeah. Um. Okay, so that's a lot of dogs that you're working with for this problem. So, can you give us a general overview of your process? Because I think everybody handles reactivity a little bit different. Yeah. Totally. Um. Obviously, I'm seeing dogs in so many different ways that my process is pretty much custom to the situation and the dog in front of me because I'm going to be able to do a lot of different activities for a one-on-one private client that I am going to be able to get done in a group class with six reactive dogs in it versus an online client that I might not have as many resources for neutral dogs and kind of setups that way. The first thing that I tend to do um, is, number one, teach uh, some soothing type behaviors. So no matter who you are, I start with pattern feeding and scattering and trying to figure out which one of those things are actually going to help the dog recover from a reaction. Mm -hmm. And then it depends on what the goals are. So... For just a pet dog trying to get through the neighborhood, we then hit the streets and kind of assess thresholds and also then start to get some, I'm really into pattern type uh, movements for Mm -hmm. reactive dogs. So like landmark movements, um, which basically means move the dog back and forth between two landmarks and teaching them to predict that they're going to go back and forth between those two things or it can be more depending on the situation but um i start them getting their patterning down from the beginning and some quote-unquote games but basically just behaviors that are default imprinted into them (laughs) paid a million times so that we can start having some alternative behaviors to produce in the situations with other dogs Mm -hmm. and then of course just some conditioning protocols where you know we're feeding a lot for tolerating the presence of other dogs Um, and really if it's a pet dog in a neighborhood I also try and teach my clients to condition the other dog so hypothetically the dog that's not there so if Mm -hmm. there's a dog in a yard This might be an unpopular opinion, but I teach them really to throw food at that dog first. Um, 
because I've been to so many neighborhoods now, it's it's no wonder that <laughs> we have so many leash reactive dogs. Yeah. Because they're getting accosted at every single corner with dogs and electric fences or dogs behind physical fences. And I would be distressed too if that was my exercise for the day. If so every I neighbor human like ran up to you and yelled as you walked in your neighborhood. Exactly. You right would. up to the side of your sidewalk and threatened you. Oh I would never leave my house. It's already <laughs> a challenge for me to leave my house and that's not happening. So Yeah, so I just I like literally have them bring meatballs or something that are kind of bigger so that the dogs that are having the run at you reaction um, can see you throw it and I just have them throw food at that dog first mostly because I'm really not under the impression that really leaving the situation with the with your dog is necessarily the answer elaborate elaborate on that a little bit well so traditionally, the turn and run away scenario or duck behind a car or give yourself distance is usually the first step um, I've seen. Oh, yeah. But, um, you know, I have met with so many clients that have totally isolated their dogs from all other dogs and all triggers. And I can tell you that that's not fixing the problem at all. Um, Which I think is the, the, that was kind of the point I was trying to make in the last podcast is that being so afraid of our dogs becoming triggered is actually not helping them get better. Right. So exactly. So, and if it was, then we could solve all reactivity problems just by avoiding all triggers and if you're really, really diligent, that is totally possible. If your dog never leaves your yard, that's well. Then you're really, never. Well, then sure. Then you're never going to see the behavior, but the behavior's still not gone. It's just not right. and happening. Actually, most of the time, that actually makes everything a little bit more intense. Um, if you haven't seen a dog for six weeks, and then you're stuck in sure a situation because there's where- a level of habituation that occurs when the dog actually is exposed to dogs on a regular basis. No matter what you do, um, like I'm, you know, I always share way too personal things on this. So here we go. I'm terrified of the doctor. And there was a time in my life when I had some serious stuff going on and I had to go to the doctor a ton. And even though I had to go for these serious things and like, it's actually, you know, would scare a normal person. (laughs) I, when I had to go all the time, I found myself less afraid. Um, right. Um, look at my agility example that I have like ring stress. You do have ring hills. stress and you needed and now, to get in that ring a lot to help it. Right. And now since I've been trialing, trying to finish qualifications for things and I've been consistently trialing a lot higher entries than average, I have lost a lot of my ring stress. And I think it's important for us to say that we're not saying just bombard your dog with other dogs. That'll fix it. We're not talking flooding, right? We're not talking talking about flooding, which I actually 
addressed earlier because um, it's a question that I got about what I had said before. Um, we're just saying that that kind of gra- that low level exposure on a consistent basis does help the dog habituate. Now, your ring stress would not have improved if every single one of these trials had been a big event, a national, a regional, or whatever. Right. They were all local trials. They were all actually manageable for you. Right. But you needed to get out there and do them and be exposed to them to feel better. Right. And all of my doctor worked for me. Right. All of my doctor visits were not surgeries. Right. <laughs> right. Sometimes you went there and just talked. Sometimes. Yep. So, um, getting back to kind of your process. <laughs> I mean, I know we, you and I, it's tangent city just all the time. Um, go back to, you use pattern feeding, which is something I talk about and worked up, but you also talked about patterns of movement. Why do you think that's so helpful? I always tell my reactive dog clients that we need to make their walks or their, uh, time with other dogs or in an environment, um, predictably unpredictable so I really like that we can establish a pattern a routine something that is super predictable I walk from this climb and eat food to this climb and eat food and I walk back and I eat food and then I can start to insert maybe some low level uh stimuli that's going to you know, insert itself into that equation, but we just keep moving to the next point. Right. And then I like it. there's kind of a pressure and release situation that happens because sometimes you're closer to and sometimes you're going away. And I really, really, really like reactive dogs to understand that that moving is actually going to get them what they want mm-hmm. um rather I than freezing that, freezing staring right escalating Even, into barking um, lunging teaching like a sit in front as a as a different behavior to reacting I think sometimes lend yourself in the world to get yourself into a situation you didn't mean to because if you pull over and you're feeding your dog for eye contact and everything's going lovely the person walking that other dog is I think tempted to stop. Yes. And maybe ask you what you're doing or comment on what breed you have or whatever the well intentioned neighbor is going to do. And so that's why I like to keep moving. And also because then if they do have a reaction and we're always trying to get back to real world, right? Everyone's yes. question is like, this is all fine and good in this class with these people, with you here. But how do I transfer this to walking or to agility trial or whatever? And I think that's one of the ways that you can really apply uh, quote-unquote setup in the dog's mind to the real world. And that's why I really like it because I can have a reaction and just keep moving in my pattern. I don't necessarily need to run away, but I don't necessarily need to stand there and face it either. It's kind of like a middle ground, I think. Yeah, I like it. That sounds um, a lot like what I started to do kind of towards the end of my 
my stint as a pet dog trainer <laughs> um, was just, you know, yeah, put the dog into a predictable pattern of movement and then throw unpredictable stimuli in there and help the dog understand that, you know, even though those things are showing up, the world continues to go on and you continue to move to this station and eat food and you continue to move to this station and eat food. Right. And it's so important for the human to actually see yeah. that it is possible to walk by X dog in X yard. Yeah. And even if that creates a reaction, the first two times of the pattern or whatever, that to see that reaction diminish and then have successful passes before then you move on is mm-hmm. really helpful to them because it is really so much about hold how you're how you are present in that situation because I think we're feeding so much nerves just like agility or whatever down the leash to them we're predicting their reaction and yeah our behavior right our behavior changes because we're predicting essentially predicting punishment for us because we hate the reaction right um and then the pattern movement is just soothing for everybody involved. You just don't even have to really think except for turning around and heading back to the just other landmark. Just keep swimming. And we teach it in a way where I'm using elevated tables to be landmarks, but it's so easy to translate that to, okay, pick a telephone pole and a mailbox. And now you have physical landmarks in your environment. And this is what you tell, you instruct them to do, because I know sometimes you utilize neutral dogs in your work, but that's something clients often really struggle with. Usually the only dogs at their disposal are the dog behind the fence in the neighborhood that's yelling at them. Um, And so again, like you talked about, you can throw food at that dog. Um, You can also just use it to your advantage that that dog is barking and just engage in a pattern in front of that dog and keep doing it right and usually that's why the food throwing actually is the most beneficial because it makes that dog more neutral and then eventually they finish the food and then they have their choice back to what they're going to do so kind of like introduces them back into the scenario is a little bit of a tougher you know thing because they're like maybe then giving more eye contact again or maybe they start barking or whining or whatever um, after they've decided they've picked up all the hot dog pieces that you bombed over their fence. Have you ever been in trouble doing that? that, Because I (laughs) I can just already hear the emails coming in. I know. I... No... But I'm sure that if everyone knew that I was feeding their dogs, they would not be pleased about You're not in trouble, Um, but you're not in trouble because nobody knows. (laughs) I I always kind of think, you know, if you have a dog with, like, a severe food allergy that it's, like, going to have a problem if it's eating something. um, Maybe it's not unsupervised in your yard all day. It's probably not unsupervised on your electric fence because it could just eat anything out there. Yeah. Um, And to clarify... electric fence you live in an area where invisible fencing is super popular super common so there's a lot of dogs that don't have a physical barrier they just have an electronic collar 
and an underground yes. an underground barrier. This doesn't exist everywhere, so I just want to make sure everybody knows what we're talking about. Um, yes, and a lot of my clients want to utilize it because it is a really inexpensive way to allow your dog to be out in your yard um, without a tie or a leash walking scenario. So there are lots of people that are fans of it. There's also a lot of places um, where I live that are like there's rules in the neighborhood about what you can and can't put out. Um, Fencing wise. Kind of like gated communities type things. Yeah. And so they're actually not allowed to have fences because it's like an eyesore or whatever. Um, But um, my problem really isn't with electric fences as much as it's with electric fence companies. So if you're thinking of an electric fence, please (laughs) at least only do your backyard. Yeah. Um, uh, Electric fence companies love to fence every inch of your property, of course, because they're a business. And then you have dogs that are actually able to run within feet of the sidewalk and like i said before it's just it's so hard oh, for the people crossing yeah, in your house such a but problem. also for your own dogs yeah it's a big choice right yeah um and it scares people like i've been i've jumped off of a sidewalk because some because you don't know where the barrier is and this dog is still running at you yeah. And sometimes you don't even have collars on, so you can't even physically identify, okay, yeah, that's probably going to stop because they get so used to the fence that they hypothetically don't go out. So that was just a little aside on that. Um, <laughs> so what does it usually look like when somebody is kind of quote-unquote done? What What do you want them to be able to do and usually it's their own personal goals right but um are you i kind of talked about two different two different kind of healing processes for reactivity and one being training alternative behaviors but the other being that the dog is actually comfortable with other dogs now um do you have a preference for one of those is one of those easier to achieve for your clients talk about that a little bit uh, um, really, I am looking for, well, I find that most of my reactive dogs, as soon as I put them in a natural setting without interference, 99% of them are totally fine in that scenario. So if we're, I have a really, really, really reactive agility dog right now, and the last week that I saw him, he hopped out of his car without a leash on and joined a pack of dogs without making one little peep of noise. And we all like looked at each other and wanted to cry about it. But he really, that's not the problem for most of them. The problem is a barrier or a leash situation. Um, And for those dogs that are leash walking or that are agility trialing, I think solved is you have all the tools to get your dog through what is difficult for them. Mm -hmm. And the human understanding that not making another sound at another dog is not the goal. Mm -hmm. The goal is 
making the dog feel as confident and comfortable as they can and then helping the dog recover as quickly as they can. So some clients just trigger stack and then spiral out of control after, you know, one big reaction, then everything's a problem for the rest of the trial or the rest of the neighborhood walk. And I want them to know how to get their dog back to normal uh, so that the rest of the walk isn't just then a downward spiral of, sure, you know, reactive dogness. So that's really, it's individual goals, but it is kind of the self-acceptance of what do I do in this situation? How do I make everything as, as good as I can for them and not be afraid anymore and not be and- really... So you mentioned that sometimes you will take reactive dog clients out on off-leash walks with other dogs and that Mm -hmm. the vast majority of the time they do perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. Do you see that transfer over to the on-leash work at all or is it just a totally different world? Um, Where I see it transfer over is in in the humans, is in the, the owner's. Honestly, because they have stories in their mind about how their dog isn't actually going to take someone's ear off. Yeah. Like they've told themselves and they're walking quite beautifully with other dogs. And so I think sometimes it's really hard to really trust that it is the fact that they're on a leash that is causing, you know, such a response out of them. Yeah. And once you see them hop out of a car with a pack of dogs that's already out and off leash and doing dog things, and you just see them totally not even have a one shred of difficulty entering that group, then I think you're so much more comfortable seeing other dogs and having them in a closer proximity and also... Um, you know, just believing that working through some of the reactions is not going to set back your progress. Yeah. Because that's what everyone's that, always yeah, that worried maybe about, if they setbacks. have a little snarkiness, it doesn't have to be the end of the world. Because mm-hmm. there is actually yeah. this normal range of dog behavior that does include those things. Right, and uh, the pack of dogs that I'm letting them off-leash with are not even the most appropriate. (laughs) They're normal dogs. They're normal dogs. Like, perfection. It's not like 10 neutral dogs that don't look at each other. Yep. It's uh, my husband's dog who tends to fly on the side of uh, submissive weirdness (laughs) behavior. So Mm -hmm. he'll really lay down and really overly act submissive. It sometimes makes other dogs upset. Yeah. Um, And then intact uh, adult border collie who, you know, he's a nice guy most of the time, but he's not going to, like, give everyone a pass on everything. Sure. So. Pretty normal range of dog behavior. Normal range of dog behavior, but not just... A bunch of... I think it's really important for everybody to know that you don't need to find magic bomb-proof dogs. 
Because exactly. they don't actually exist. I don't know any. Do you? No. Yeah. <laughs> um, but if you allow them to just kind of be who they are and talk to each other... I mean, I hike really regularly with a big group of dogs that's got just a huge range of temperaments and personalities, and they just figure out how to coexist with each other, and I think it's so healthy for them. Um, it's kind of like, you know, trying to find the perfect preschool for your child that has zero kids that have any issues in it. Right. Like, good luck. Impossible. It is. It is. Im- homeschool. <laughs> perfect. <laughs> Exactly. That won't create any problems. Uh, oh, God. Now I'm going to get emails about that. However you choose to educate your children is up to you. Um, all right. Well, anything Hold else on. you want to add on reactivity? I do. One thing. <laughs> yes. Just one small thing. Um, running my group classes has been great just because I've, I've got to see... I've gotten to see so many different types of dogs and everything on the spectrum, basically. But um, one thing that I can say with, like, really, really solid backing now is that what those dogs do before they come to class absolutely has the biggest impact on how that class goes for them. Um, And really meaning I've had two different scenarios where I've had dogs just completely, they've been doing well, they've been in now, you know, two rounds of classes, everything's really turning out pretty well for them. And then something in their day before they came to class happened and it totally just changed. They couldn't really even function in class. And uh, for one of those dogs, it was that he missed his hike that day. Mm. Um, they've been doing a really good job of, you know, hiking him. They're, they're not comfortable with him off leash, so he walks in a muzzle and a long line. He's a very large German Shepherd. And um, the other was a Aussie who got kind of given to the twenty somethings in the house to like go hang out at a lake with their friends with mm-hmm. them for the day, and they went like tubing and all these kind of water activities, but just totally really high intensity lots of running around and chasing after things and swimming and fun but overstimulating stuff right and he also then came to class and they thought it'll be great he'll be exhausted everything will go perfect and he ha- was the most um uncontrollable as far as the amount of reactions he was having to things he was accustomed to doing so I think that's really, really important. So everyone really looks at how are they setting up their day before they go to like work on those problems. And I think that that just comes back to what we always talk about, which is that if the dog's basic needs have not been met, um, correct, that we can't actually expect the dog to be what we would like them to be. Correct. Um, and I just think that, you know, it, again, it comes back to not all exercises created equal, equal and all of these things are so important for reactive dogs. And when we just isolate them, um, the way that so many people do to try to avoid triggers, 
we're not actually helping them because again, then we're not getting them that kind of exercise they need. And I would say, you know, having a few reactions in a week, but getting some good solid exercise is better than having zero reactions in the week, but staying at home. So perfect. Exactly. All right, you guys, I'm sure you'll still have questions and thoughts for us. Leave them over on the (laughs) Cog Dog Radio Facebook page. And Casey, if they want to hear more from you, where can they find you? Facebook, Inspiration Canine, or InspirationCanine.com. Excellent. Thanks so much, Casey. You're the best. Hey there, dog people of the internet. It's me, Sarah Strumming of the Cognitive Canine, and this is called Dog Radio, a podcast about all things dog sports and dog training. Join me as I explore my cases and considerations regarding the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. I hope you enjoy it.